Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17? The Lord, through his prophet Elijah, has just rescued a widow of Zarephath and her son from starvation through the unending jar of flour and jug of oil. But immediately after that act of salvation, tragedy seems to strike. 1 Kings 17, starting verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now let's turn to our sermon text, Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. Remember that Paul is in Ephesus. We just last time concluded the description of the riot uh, of the defenders of uh, the goddess Artemis. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement... He came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep 
as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, where Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Amen. You may be seated. As we start, I'd like to tell you about a Greek word that appears in this passage a few times. Um, You may have heard the Holy Spirit referred to before as the paraclete. Paraclete. So what does that mean? It comes from the Greek word parakletos. Um, It's the word Jesus uses in John 16. When in the ESV, it says that when Jesus goes away, when he ascends into heaven, who's going to come to the church? In his place. Well, the ESV reads the helper. The helper. Uh, Some translations say the advocate or the counselor. King James Version says the comforter. The verb form of that same word, uh, sometimes there's a Greek word that kind of have the same part of the word that can be a noun or it can be a verb. And the verb form gets translated many different ways. It can mean to encourage to exhort, to admonish, to entreat, to urge, or to comfort. Why do I bring this up? Well, it turns out this word group comes up three times in this passage, um, and I think really helps to tie it together, different things Paul does in these verses. You see it in verse 1, after encouraging them, he said, farewell and departed, it says, Uh, Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. There it is again. What you might miss, and the reason I bring this up, is um, that in verse 12, uh, where Luke says, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's the same word group, different English word, but same Greek word group. And what I want you to see here is that everywhere Paul goes in this passage, this is what he's doing. He's being a, a, a parakletos, with, with a lowercase p. He's being an encourager, a helper, an exhorter, and a comforter for the people of God. Now remember, what is the theme of the whole book of Acts? I've told you several times before. It is Christ's church on Christ's mission by Christ's spirit. For Christ's glory, right? 
And so we could say that in this passage, as Paul is going around exhorting, encouraging, comforting these churches, who's the one who's giving that ministry its life and its power? Well, it's the helper. It's the encourager, the comforter with a capital H, a capital E, a capital C. It's the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, let's look at this part of Paul's ministry, which is an expression of Christ's ministry from heaven to his church through his spirit. Let's look at it in three parts today. First is going to be leaving a legacy, verses 1 through 6. Second, word and wonder, verses 7 to 12. And finally, facing the future, verses 13 to 16. So leaving a legacy, word and wonder, facing the future. So we've really uh, reached a turning point here. Um, Not just in Paul's third missionary journey, although that's true. Um, His main destination for this excursion, you remember, uh, was Ephesus. He spent more than two years there. And now that time has come to a close. uh, And um, he's not going to go straight back to Jerusalem quite yet. He's going to go in the opposite direction first, uh, revisiting the churches in Macedonia and Greece uh, from his second missionary journey. Uh, during that time, he's going to write some of his most important letters. Second uh, Corinthians, we talked about last week, is one of them he'll write on the way. And then actually from Corinth, when he is in that city, he's going to write his great letter to the Romans, uh, arguably his magnum opus. Um, uh, but let's not forget that Paul uh, hasn't sort of retreated into some kind of retirement and solitude when he writes those letters. He's in the middle of a very active ministry. Verse 1 um, says, after the uproar ceased, uh, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now, you might think that this represents Paul essentially being um, defeated, that he's giving in to the violence of the crowd from the end of chapter 19 and, and having to move on. And it's, it's possibly true that By now, Paul's presence in Ephesus has become more of a danger than a help to the church there. Uh, But we shouldn't forget that back in chapter 19, verse 21, Paul was already resolved in the spirit before the riot happened to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so this departure from Ephesus, we shouldn't see as a defeat or a retreat, but really as an advance as so many of the other apparent defeats in the book of Acts are. Christ's agenda has not been foiled. It is moving ahead. Everything is going exactly according to plan in the big picture, according to Christ's plan of the spread, for the spread of the gospel. Um, in fact, Timothy and Erastus, Paul has already sent ahead into Macedonia ahead of him, and so now it's time for him to uh, join them. But before he does that, he calls together the Ephesian church, and what does he do? He encourages them. As the New American Standard says, he exhorted them, reminding them of everything he's taught them so far, uh, comforting them with the promises of Christ, I'm sure would have been part of it, urging them to stay faithful, to persevere when he's no longer with them in person. Now, as Paul goes on to Macedonia and Greece, um, I have no doubt that plenty of interesting things happened along the way there. I would love to have been kind of fly on the wall as Paul 
discipled these churches, as he trained leaders for them, as he continued to help them to grow in maturity, uh, going back through this second pass after the second missionary journey now in the third. Uh, but, but Luke passes through that uh, part of his trip very, very rapidly. It's like Luke is speeding the narrative ahead. He's conveying this sense of momentum that Paul is really heading towards Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. That's one of the reasons this passage is a, is a broader turning point in the whole life and ministry of Paul, not just the third missionary journey, because that journey to, to Jerusalem is going to turn out to be very critical. Uh, but first, let's pause on verses 4 through 6. You might wonder, of, of all of the interesting things that Luke could have taken the time to record about this period of, of visiting the Macedonian Greek churches, and as much of a hurry as he seems to be in to get through this tour of Greece and on to the next thing, on to the trip to Jerusalem, uh, why does he slow down and devote all of this space to this list of names? Well, when we slow down too and we look at this list, uh, what we can see is that it is a deliberate and very remarkable testament to Paul's legacy, to what Christ has powerfully and effectively accomplished through his missionary ministry. Um, and that it helps if you look not just at the names, but where these people are from. This is like a, a catalog of key places that Paul has worked, churches he's planted, uh, the fruit of his ministry from all three missionary journeys, covering a massive stretch of space and by now a good length of time as well. So first of all, there's representatives from Berea and Thessalonica. Those are churches in Macedonia churches he planted on the second missionary journey. Then uh, Gaius is from Derby, Timothy is from Lystra, and that takes us all the way back to the first missionary journey. These are the Galatian churches in that central region of Asia Minor. Then, he, uh, then representing the third journey, we have Tychicus and Trophimus, the Asians. And remember, when he refers to Asians, he's probably talking about Ephesus and the region surrounding that city. So all of these men... Christ has raised up to serve all of these churches that Christ has established in all of these places. And Luke is inviting us here just to pause and kind of take stock, just take in this kind of sum total of Paul's missionary labors, this legacy of Christ's work through him, stretching right across the very heart of the Roman Empire. What strikes me about this is partly um, the many churches that have been planted, cities where there was no Christian witness before, and Paul came with the simple message of Christ's death and resurrection, and he preached it in the synagogues, and some of the Jews responded, some of them rejected him, and so he went and he brought the message on to the Gentiles in those cities, and from those two groups in each of those cities, God made... One church of sinners saved by grace, where before there was no church in those cities, and now there is. Um, but this particular list of names highlights a more specific aspect of Paul's uh, ministry, and that's the way he cultivated new leadership from those many churches and for those many churches. So uh, remember that Paul, near the end of his life, his very last letter that we have, would later write to Timothy what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And there he's simply telling Timothy to continue what he himself has been doing throughout his ministry. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so laborers for the church are ultimately Christ's gift to the church. Only he can raise them up by his supernatural power. And how does he go about doing that? This is how. This is how. As we pray as a congregation for the Lord to raise up new leaders for our church and for the church more broadly, we are to be at work in faith and by his grace uh, to give the discipleship and the training and the opportunities that men need to grow in their faith, to develop their gifts, so that they're ready when the time comes to enter into that harvest, um, perhaps even years from now. And that is exactly what Paul did throughout his ministry. He did not seek to make himself indispensable to these churches. He didn't build a cult of personality around himself so they would always need Paul to be there. We can't imagine our church without him kind of attitude. No, Paul was there to plant Christ's church and to equip it, equip it with leaders that Christ was raising up in each of those places. And we've talked about before our church's model for foreign missions uh, these are the kind of churches that we want to plant on foreign fields, not uh, Ugandan churches that always need American pastors. No, we want Ugandan churches with Ugandan pastors that ultimately will send out Ugandan missionaries to other parts of Africa and beyond. But it's not just about Uganda or Haiti or China either. We want to be looking for Christ to raise up new leaders here in State College, Pennsylvania. We want um, not just the pastor and the elders, but the whole church to be thinking, how can we how can our congregation take part in this work of discipling and training and equipping new leaders for the next generation of the church? It's a critical aspect of our work and mission. Okay, on to Troas then. On to Troas. So Paul has been to Troas before. Um, Troas is, in fact, the place where Paul received that vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Very famous passage. It's back in Asia Minor on the coast of the Aegean Sea, like Ephesus, but well to the north of Ephesus, higher up. Um, and there, as in all the other cities, uh, Paul is building on his previous visit. He's teaching and encouraging them. And it appears he's, he's really trying to make the most of the short time that he has to stay there. When it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, uh, by the way, we just note in passing, this is one of several places in the New Testament that explicitly... Um, indicate the church gathering on the first day of the week instead of the seventh, indicating that early shift from Saturday to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, the day that Jesus rose from the dead that they're observing, the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Um, this is showing that shift in Christian practice as opposed to the Jewish synagogues. Um, and on that day, it says, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Um, so it's late. They're, they're indoors in what may have been a pretty stuffy upper room environment. When it says there were many lamps, remember that these are not um, plugged into the wall with nice clean LED uh, light bulbs. These are oil lamps um, producing a noticeable smoke and smell. And so you can sympathize with Eutychus wanting to sit by the open window 
right? I think you can also sympathize with him getting tired as the hour gets late and Paul talked still longer. It says he sank into a deep sleep. Totally understandable. It could happen to anybody under these circumstances. But in this case, as a very tragic outcome, it says being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And I, I hope you can imagine just the, the shock and the alarm and the sense of dread that would have filled everybody's hearts, just confusion as people rushed down the stairs. Maybe they're trying to make room for Eutychus' parents to get through. And, and you might even imagine somebody say, Luke at this point is traveling with Paul, it seems, based on the way he talks about we uh, going from place to place. Um, you can imagine somebody saying, Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, come and help us. Is he going to be okay? And as one writer points out, Dr. Luke knows better than anyone that no, he's not going to be okay. And you imagine the just overwhelming feeling this would have been for these Christians gathering around this boy's body and thinking, how, how could this have happened? How could this time of such sweet fellowship and learning and reflecting on the past and looking forward to the future and all this happiness and warmth that we were feeling together, and it's all just been shattered into a million pieces by this ridiculous accident, absurd, senseless, nauseating. What in the world is God doing here? Of course, that's not the end of the story because Paul went down and bent over him. And I I don't think that choice of words is an accident. I think that we are meant to remember here Elijah stretching himself out on the body of the deceased child, the widow Zarephath. Elisha later did something very similar in 2 Kings. And as with Elijah, as with Elisha, you can see what the Lord then does through this servant of his, sent to encourage, comfort this fledgling church. And taking him in his arms, Paul said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And so there's life from the dead, there's joy out of the sorrow. Out of all of that despair and tragic absurdity, there comes this comfort. And after all, that is, that's what the gospel is, isn't it? Because all of us live with the absurdity and the senselessness and the futility of life under the sun. And when we're not sensing it, it's often just because we've managed to relegate that sense to a corner of our minds and hearts and ignore it for a while. And it keeps coming back out and confronting us in the news, in nature, and in our own experience. We live in a world that is filled with death. It's a world where tragedy and grief um, don't seem evenly distributed because the people that we think deserve those things go on living happy, wealthy, and healthy, successful lives. And then all of a sudden, something like this happens. And 
happens to people we consider to be the best of us, maybe. And we're just overwhelmed again with that sense of helplessness and frustration. How can something like this happen if God is good? Now, the Lord doesn't always resolve that by reversing the tragedy and maybe raising a person we've lost from the dead. That's the exception and not the rule in this life. But what the gospel does is it reminds us of the death of the Son of God, right? Reminds us of Christ, who was God himself, crucified and perishing under the weight, not only the unjust weight of the hand of Roman law, but also of the just hand of God the Father against our sin. See, the gospel does not erase the pain and that angst of our suffering and our loss. But what it does show is it shows God himself through the incarnation and the passion of Lord Jesus entering into our suffering and our loss. But it also does not stop there. See, some people uh, would want to stop there. People would want to say that that is the heart of the gospel, that the gospel is about a Jesus who came to sympathize with us. It's God showing us how much he loves us by joining in our suffering. No, that is not the good news. That alone would not be good news. Somehow it's trying to say God suffers too, so you should feel better. No. The good news is that Jesus passed through suffering. And on beyond it to glory, to resurrection, life from the dead, joy out of sorrow, and out of the despair and tragic absurdity of the cross, the comfort and hope for the people of God comes in the resurrection and shows us that the absurdity and the tragedy of life do not, do not have the last word. It was a major theme of the message that Paul was just impressing on these people in his teaching. And now Christ has used him to picture that message for them so vividly through this miracle. I called the second point word and wonder. It's this twofold way that Christ is making his gospel known in teaching and in action. He's proclaiming it and picturing it. So what's the result then for the people of God? It says, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So there it is again, that same Greek word group, earlier translated encourage or exhort, now it's translated comfort. But it's all part of the same work of Christ through Paul, encouraging the church in their Christian walk, exhorting them to mature and endure, comforting with the assurance that Christ is with them, that Christ is for them, and that his resurrection is giving them the promise of an irrepressible life that is stronger than the tragedy that is going to continue to face even the people of God as we poor wayfaring strangers are traveling through this world of woe on our way to a better world to come. As Paul had written to the church in Corinth, not long before. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, and we do, you know that you do, and that those you love do. But so, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort, too. There's great hope for the people of God. Now, it's instructive, and it's no accident, this greatest miracle of Paul, raising someone from the dead, doesn't get any more miraculous than that, um, that it comes at this particular juncture in Paul's ministry. I told you earlier, we're at a turning point. This is a good place to introduce a major theme uh, that's going to carry us through the whole last third of the book of Acts, which is the very close resemblance Luke brings out between the upcoming arrest and sufferings of Paul with the arrest and sufferings of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, particularly uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, all of them really emphasize the final long journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem. That ultimately uh, winds up with the triumphal entry, and of course that's the beginning of the week leading up to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Um, Luke 9.51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It's a major turning point in Luke's gospel where he says there, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen to him there. And see, what Luke does here is he begins to picture for us the Apostle Paul making a parallel journey to Jerusalem where he, like Jesus, uh, knows that he is going to be faced with the greatest crisis of his ministry. And so the last few verses here are not just flyover territory. Uh, The point is there in verse 16 when it says that just as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, now it says Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Ben Witherington, commentator, points out that The raising of Eutychus is Paul's last miracle that we hear about before his arrest and suffering in uh, Jerusalem, before he's ultimately sent on to Rome. How striking, then, that it is also the greatest, right? And another commentator, Daryl Bach, suggests that the reason for this is to show the power of Christ at work through Paul, set side by side with the great suffering that he's about to experience just as Jesus also demonstrated his power through great miracles in the prelude to his suffering. So Paul's upcoming suffering in Jerusalem does not mean that he is weak or that Christ is too weak to prevent it and that after everything that has been accomplished, the gospel is now losing. What it is going to mean is that Paul is following in the footsteps of his Savior, a Savior who himself passed through the valley of the shadow of death and experienced the comfort of the resurrection beyond it, a Christ who sometimes leads his people through that valley in his steps. But 
offers to us also the comfort of the resurrection hope we have in him. We'll have much more to say about the parallels between Paul's sufferings and Christ's in the weeks to come. But for now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this account and for the encouragement and exhortation and comfort that you have given to us in it. And Lord, we pray that you would please use us. Lord, use the suffering that you have led us through, those that we love. Lord, let it not be wasted, we pray. We ask that you would use us to extend the comfort with which you've comforted us to others who need that same comfort that's found in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.